are listening to Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees, Episode 28, Gwendolyn Marshall. Life Story Trail of Trees is a tribute project started by Springfield businessman Jim Malden in the early 2000s. Then, more than a decade later, the project reached Friends of the Garden at Nathaniel Green Close Memorial Park in Springfield, Missouri. Black gum trees were planted in 2012 at the northern edge of the park and symbolized the legacy left by ethnic community leaders. Each tree stands for an Ozark citizen who has left a lasting positive impact on their community through service, generosity, and tenacity. Each story is maintained and immortalized by a story keeper who has volunteered to ensure the legacy of the storyteller lives on. My birthday is September 11th, a date that will live in infamy, and one I will never forget. It changed lives forever in our nation and the world at large. The year of my birth was 1948. Gwendolyn Jean Lockett Marshall is my legal name. I was born in Jackson, Mississippi, to May Ella Mahaffey Lockett and Robert Lockett. They met in Jackson and were married for ten years. My mother graduated from Lanier High School in Jackson, Mississippi. She attended nursing school and was one of the first black nurses to graduate from Mississippi State Charity Hospital School of Nursing. My father was a chef, and he and my mother both worked for the VA hospital. After their divorce, my mother moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where she continued to work for the Veterans Administration. Both my mother and father were remarried. My mother is a beautiful woman of great strength and character. She taught me by example the value of hard work, integrity, and perseverance. She has always inspired me to be my best. You are going to make it, were her frequent words of encouragement. She has been a driving force in my life. I am who I am today because of her guidance. My mother met and married Earl Graham when I was eight years old. He was a U.S. Navy veteran and a tailor by profession. He made many of my formals for high school events. He loved and pampered my mother. She never owned a raincoat or an umbrella because he always dropped her off at the door. He was my father of my youth and a beloved granddad for my children. They remained married until his death. My mother's parents were Joe and Bertha Mahaffey. My grandfather, Joe, was part Native American and part black. My maternal grandparents had 15 children and eventually were the owners of over 300 acres of land. As a child, I can remember picking green beans in the summer and cotton in the fall. In the South, there were a lot of predominantly black communities, and even in my early childhood, when I spent a lot of time with my grandparents on their farm in Mississippi, The whole community was predominantly black. My grandfather Joe died in 1978, and my grandmother Bertha passed away in 1985. The death of my grandparents marked the end of many wonderful years of my life. 
They were dynamic role models who had excellent work ethics. They were the best grandparents any child could have wanted. I am the only child born to the union of Robert and May Lockett. However, when my father remarried, he had other children, who I never got to know. I spent lots of fun times with my mother in her flower garden. She loved flowers and worked diligently to keep them beautiful. Our family was always very close, and there were lots of happy times with family during my childhood years. Once my mother left her parents' farm in Mississippi and finished nursing school, her home became the way off the farm for her younger siblings and cousins. I always looked forward to their coming because they read wonderful stories to me and were my babysitters when they were not at school or working. They took me to the fair and to the zoo, and there were wonderful times, but they also played tricks on me. They told me that if I stuck my finger in the clothespin, it wouldn't hurt, or that hot sauce didn't burn. I was too young to get it at first, but eventually I learned. We had a family reunion every year, which was the highlight of my summers. Family members came from all over the United States, and we celebrated for a whole week. On Sunday, each family brought a dish, and after the Sunday morning services, we ate on the church grounds. There was always lots of delightful food, and church lasted all day. I wish those days had never ended. Everything seemed perfect. The weather was hot, and the country roads were dusty, but I would not have traded that life experience for anything. My favorite holidays were May Day and Christmas. Christmas always meant two celebrations, because I traveled between Memphis and Jackson to be with both parents. I had Christmas with my mother and stepfather, and then went to Jackson to be with my father and his family. What child wouldn't like to celebrate Christmas twice? May Day was a big event at school. We wrapped the May pole, and there were lots of activities on the playground. I always looked forward to the May Day celebration. During a part of my elementary years in Jackson, Mississippi, I attended a private Catholic school. In the segregated South, this was really interesting, because I think I was one of maybe two or three little black children running around on that school campus with white kids and white nuns and a white priest. It seems they were very open to anyone that had the money to pay tuition. In the Catholic school, I was taught the way of the Catholic Church, but on Sundays, I attended the Methodist church with my mother. I had the Methodist and Catholic experience at an early age. I'm very proud of my educational experience in the South, both spiritually and academically. I came up through a time of segregation, and my teachers were some of the very best. As African Americans, they were very in tune with what we needed to succeed in the world today. They were very hard on us and very strict. They did not allow us to not perform. They were very clear about what our learning abilities were, and they pushed us to achieve the best of our ability. I attended an all-black school in Memphis, so coming to Springfield was a culture shock. I graduated from high school in 1966, which was before desegregation. Our high school, the middle school, and the elementary school were all right there on the same campus. My best friend was Claudia Merriweather. Once, Claudia and I tried to sneak across the state line into Mississippi to a Dr. King march. We wanted to be a part of the march. However, as we got closer and closer to the activities, we noticed that some of the marchers were being crop-dusted by white farmers. Policemen were lining the roadway with guns at the ready position. 
Needless to say, we turned around and headed back to Memphis. I don't think our parents have ever heard of this incident. It has been one major secret between Claudia and me. This was only one of our little escapades. Because my mother worked for the government, I was not able to fully participate in any of the civil rights movement. Dr. King often came to Memphis or just to the border where the state line met Mississippi. There were marches and other activities, but my mother did not permit me to participate. She thought it might jeopardize her job. If I was involved and got arrested or something, it would be a reflection on her, and she wouldn't be able to continue her employment. However, the members of the Presbyterian Church where I attended were very much involved in the civil rights movement. The local NAACP president was a member of our church, so we did a lot of background kind of activities. Attending these kinds of activities gave me exposure to a semi-political arena. The neighborhood in Memphis, where I grew up, was totally black. In our local community, mostly everything from our auto mechanics to our laundromats were owned by blacks. It's interesting to note that a lot of people on my street owned their homes. However, I want to digress a bit and talk about land ownership in the South and how far we've really come from all perspectives, especially for the last couple of generations, including my own. My grandfather was very, very fortunate to be able to amass a great deal of land in Mississippi, which was really unheard of. The church was the hub of social life for many African Americans. A lot of things were going on in our community that whites would not have believed were going on. Even today, black social life is very much still alive. The arts are present, and there are many middle-class blacks, the more affluent blacks, who are very much involved in society. There are attorneys, doctors, and other professionals who live in very nice homes and expose their children to the very best. Ballet, classical music, opera, and other forms of art are all a part of their education. I think this kind of exposure is seen perhaps even more in the South than it is in the Northern states. It's just sad that the South of yesterday, for many blacks, had been so cruel that they were forced to move away. They went North to look for a better life, and I can't really say whether they found that better life or not. Nevertheless, there are many blacks in the South who have become affluent and have made their property work for them. During my teen years, I never interacted with whites, and when we went out in Memphis, we had our own restaurants. All socializing was done in a segregated atmosphere. I lived a very segregated life, but until I got older, I didn't even understand what segregation was all about. My mother did not talk about it because it was a totally accepted way of life, and we didn't push the issue. When we went out to the shopping areas, my mother was very careful not to offend the white people or the white clerks. I really had a fear of whites. I didn't know how to receive them. I'd never interacted with them, and I felt I wouldn't fit in. I wouldn't know what to do if I were to eat dinner with them. I wouldn't know how to carry on a conversation. I think segregation really generates a lot of fear. I'm sure whites feared us as much as we feared them. When I came to Springfield, every white person I saw looked the same, and I was almost in a state of fear and panic all the time. I came to Springfield on the tail end of segregation. 
even though the schools were desegregated and there seemed to be a lot of interracial marriages and relationships and a lot of little biracial children running around, Springfield still had its own segregation problems and probably still does. I arrived in Springfield by train with my mother, my best friend Claudia, and her mother. We finally got to SMS and got our paperwork done, but one thing I really want you to know and make note of is that segregation was still strong. They put every black student in the same dorm. We both attended SMS for one year. I returned to Springfield for a second year, but got married instead of returning to school, and Claudia never returned. I have found very little black leadership in Springfield, which I believe stems from the lack of trust among most blacks. The church has been a source of strength. However, not all blacks belong to a church. In the past few years, I have seen young men and women take their place in local government, but there is still room for improvement. I feel family is the beginning of change. As we begin to see strong family values in Springfield, we begin to see real change. As the city grows racially, we must learn to be tolerant. The more you are around me, the more you will get to know me. Springfield is going to have to get to know all the people that make up its population. I have seen the racial changes, and I welcome them. Springfield is a college town and has some of the best schools in the nation. SMS is the reason I came to this town, and I love the diversity of the students. Springfield is attracting people from all over the world. I am looking forward to the time when black citizens of Springfield who were born and raised here will be afforded the same opportunities as those who have moved into the city. Our young black people generally move away to find success. I have four children who have grown up here, and only one has chosen to stay in Springfield. The other three feel there are no real opportunities for them in this city. I had attended SMS for one year when I met and married Mike Marshall. This really changed the direction of my life. I never forgot about my dream to teach. However, my marriage just made everything a little more difficult. Mike and I had four children, two daughters and two sons. Our marriage lasted approximately 27 years, with lots of ups and downs. During our marriage, I had this thought that I needed to finish college, so I'd go back and forth. I'd have a child and go back to school, then work, and between work and the child and keeping house, it would be too much and I'd have to drop my classes. Then I'd have another child and I'd go back to school. Being a wife, a working mother, and trying to go to school became so overwhelming that there did not seem to be enough hours in the day to accomplish my goals. This on-and-off process of trying to attend school went on and on and on until I got a scholarship in education from Springfield Public Schools. Recently, a few doors have opened up for me. For instance, as a member of the Minister's Coalition, I was given the privilege of working as an HIV-AIDS youth education specialist. The position allowed me to travel to conferences and trainings to glean information which I share with the community. This information will help young people learn how to stop the spread of a disease, which is completely preventable. Although my appointment was between 2002 and 2003, I have gained a lifetime of knowledge that can be used to continue the fight against HIV and AIDS. I am currently a special education aide for Springfield Public Schools. It seems like children today have a harder time coping with the everyday complexities of life. 
The classrooms of America have had to adapt to the total needs of the student. The many rewards for my labor in the classroom cannot be measured or purchased with money. I have worked with students who, in their early years, were not very attentive, but later matured and developed into wonderful young people. I believe their strength and determination helped them to reach their goals. My love for people caused me to look for ways to be of help in the community. I attended Deliverance Temple Church and was active as a youth director. I was also a member of Women Aglow International, a Christian women's organization, and a member of the NAACP. As I began to be more involved in the church, I felt drawn to the ministry. I was very hesitant about my feelings because I had been taught that God did not call women to become preachers. I was very concerned about what people might think. However, I was greatly encouraged by my mother when she said that she would come to hear me preach. Her encouragement gave me what I needed to carry on. In 1995, I was licensed to preach, and one year later ordained as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Since that time, I have had many opportunities to be of service to this community. My life mission has always included women and youth. When my children were in school, they brought their friends home, who at many times would stay for months. Our home was an extension of my ministry. Several young women have lived with us as they tried to work through their problems in their lives. Learning to share what we had was a way of life in our family. I never knew from day to day who would be a part of our household. I think of my home as a temporary sanctuary for people in need, because when one leaves, another comes. The church does a great deal to help needy people. However, if each Christian took it upon themselves to help just one person, the gospel would be realized on a much more personal level. Since I am in contact with so many young people throughout the Springfield Public School System, I tell stories as a learning tool. I have also shared my stories at school assemblies, churches, other events, and have been asked to do a day of storytelling. Many of my stories come from African American folklore books I've read. I also use my grandparents and their farm in Mississippi to tell my stories. The children seem to love best the stories of my childhood on the farm, and sometimes write letters to tell me how much they enjoyed them. All my stories have a moral. They are designed to teach goodness and correctness of character and behavior. One of my favorite stories is called Spreading Your Fingers. It tells about sharing, and the moral is if we share, it will come back to us. In this particular story, food was shared, and at the end, the person who shared received. Raising my children was also a life mission for me. Since I was an only child, having children of my own was an adventure. My first child, Elisa, was born a day before my first wedding anniversary, which meant, to my surprise, that I was pregnant only three months after I got married. When I called my mother to tell her the news, I was in tears. I guess I didn't expect to be having a baby so soon after our marriage. However, with the birth of each child, I realized that I'd been given an awesome responsibility. I knew that my raising children would be a lifelong commitment, and I wanted to be the best mom ever, even if, as the saying goes, they don't come with instructions. My second child was born in Osceola, Missouri, on the way home to Springfield from Kansas City. Even though my mother said I should stay home, I was determined to attend my friend's wedding because my doctor had assured me I would be fine. 
Chris was actually born in the back seat of a car and was my first experience with natural childbirth. I actually had a very easy time when the other two children was born. I actually had a very easy time when the other two children were born. However, after the delivery of Michael, our third child, I had said to God I didn't want to go through those delivery room doors ever again. I know that God has a sense of humor because our fourth child was born in the labor room after the nurses told me I was not going to have my baby that night and they were going to send me home until the next morning. But Octavia came suddenly that night, as an older nurse had predicted. The joy of being the mother of our four children is ongoing. Even though we have disagreements, we always remember our love for one another. The divorce was one thing that really hurt us all. In some cases, it may be the best for everyone involved, but it doesn't mean there isn't hurt, especially when there are children who don't realize the severity of the problems between their parents. Divorce made life very difficult for our children, so it was important that I tried to provide them with security and lots of love. We are still recovering and going on with our lives. After the divorce, I needed a reason to keep on living, because many times I felt life was not worthwhile. The children were finding their own way, and I felt alone. Suddenly, my dream to continue my education came true when I was awarded a scholarship. I finally had renewed hope and direction again. Sometimes now I feel there isn't enough time to do all the things going on in my life, but I thank God for this intervention. I am also thankful for the people who have helped me get started again, many of whom no longer live in Springfield, but who changed my life with their inspiration and encouragement. I feel my mission in life is ongoing and continually evolving. I have learned not to be surprised by anything and to realize that each day is truly a new day, full of new opportunities to serve. Like the story Spreading Your Fingers, the scripture says not to be wary in well-doing, for we shall reap if we faint not. I am human and sometimes feel like fainting or stopping, but there is work yet to be done, so I tell myself to keep going. I think about what success really is when I go about my life mission. At one time, I thought success meant a high-paying job, a beautiful house, and living happily ever after with my husband and children. I've since learned that success means different things to different people. For me, success is loving God with all my heart and loving my neighbors, and it cannot be measured by what a person possesses, but how and with what quality they have lived their lives. We are writing our eulogy every day that we live. A grassroots woman of the people seems to be my station in life. I love fighting for the underdog. I gain gratification from seeing people succeed when others have given up on them. I have worked in a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center, and many of those women are still a part of my life. I see them on the street in Springfield, and some have been able to sustain a life free from drugs and alcohol, but others have not. I try to encourage them all and I pray and minister to them whenever we meet, whether it's in the grocery store, the mall, or on the street. We should take every opportunity to encourage a brother or sister when they are striving to overcome an obstacle which has stood in the way of their progress toward their personal goals. Everyone has dreams and goals, but when times get hard, we all need a helping hand. In January 2002, the Gwen Marshall Ministries was born. I call it the Church Without Walls. Joel and Regina Rogers have been the real inspiration behind this project, 
They lived with us for a year, and they were the ones who actually did the work required to have my ministry legally incorporated. I can never thank them enough for their encouragement and hard work. I enjoy the Church Without Walls concept because it increases my ability to minister. I call Springfield the village, and it takes an entire village to accomplish our goals. Yet the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. I was 19 years old when I came to Springfield. It has been a place of growth and maturing for me. It has been a place where some of my dreams have been deferred and others have come to pass. The segregated South had not prepared me for Springfield. The racial climate was different. It was hard to determine if I was accepted by the white population or just being tolerated. The surface seemed calm, but there was an undercurrent. Having no immediate relatives who lived nearby during my first few years in Springfield was a problem for me. Because my husband was a native of Springfield, he was near his family and he knew lots of people. In the South, our neighborhoods were family-oriented, even if they were segregated, so I had to learn to develop friendships which included getting to know people of other nationalities. I don't think I hated these people, I just hadn't been exposed to them. A quote that I often use is, To know me is to love me, to love me is to spend time with me, and after you have spent time with me, then you will know why you love me. I had to learn the meaning of this saying, and Springfield has been the perfect place. I had to rethink my segregated lifestyle. My husband and children played a large part in the reconstruction of my life. I began to meet more Christian women, most of whom were white. We spent lots of time together, and I began to notice that we are more alike than different. I came to understand that we all cry, hurt, rejoice, and love. Gradually, I began to see a change in my attitude. I have worked lots of jobs during my years in Springfield. I have been a nurse's aide, a sales clerk at the old Sears on St. Louis Street, worked for Ozark's Fighting Back, I've been a special education aide for Springfield Public Schools, HIV-AIDS Youth Specialist for the Minister Coalition, and I served on a committee that helped understand sickness and death in the black community. I am presently serving on the Springfield History Museum Board, who, along with the History Museum of Ash Grove, is interested in keeping the history of Springfield and surrounding areas alive. The history of Springfield is a combination of victories and defeats. My life has been full of victories and defeats as well. However, living in Springfield has taught me to hope. I am a board member of the Center City North Group, which builds new houses for the needy. I am also on the board of the Sherman Avenue Project, whose aim is to restore and rent old houses. Each of these jobs and experiences has increased my love for God, life, and my fellow man. I have always wanted to teach, but after I didn't finish college, I became a teacher's assistant. I am presently working with behavior disorder students. I have always worked around the school system. I started as a lunchroom aide. I finally got my job as a teacher's aide and now I'm hoping to finish the degree that I started back in 1966. My major is education, but right now I'm looking at graduating with a degree in social studies. I hope to be able to teach in middle school. At my present age, I think anything would be exciting. Getting my degree has become more of a personal objective. I now want to do it for the self-gratification and the feeling of accomplishment that I truly finished what I started. 
My goal is to finish anything that I start and never make commitments that I don't keep. My life in Springfield hasn't been too bad. I haven't lived a real dormant life, but I always long to be back in the South and on my own turf. When I came to Springfield, I had many fears. I still have fears, but I learned to overcome many of them. When love replaces hate, fear is eliminated because it takes courage to love and trust. I have seen lots of changes since I first came to Springfield in 1966. My children are all grown up, and I'm a grandmother. I have enjoyed watching my own children grow beyond their humble beginnings and become the people God has called them to be. My journey is still in progress, and so is my spiritual growth and faith. Doors opened when I least expected them to, and I'm excited about stepping in before they close. I'm happy that I chose not to run away from the challenges I've faced in Springfield because they have made me and my children what we are today. Life is not so demanding that I can't take time to reflect on how far I've come. I'm looking forward to the future and am willing to go wherever he leads me. This is an edited version of Marshall's story. You can read each story in its entirety at thelibrary.org or by clicking the link in the description of this post. The story keeper for Gwendolyn Marshall is Vilma Thompson. Music is Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Colin Carr at freemusicarchive.org under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivative, 3.0 United States license. Story excerpts edited and read by Diana Dudenhafer. (laughs) 